0: everyone welcome to the Charvak podcast this is your host kushal mehra all right today's podcast is about the manmar civil war uh so for those who don't know there's been uh, the military coup that happened uh, three years ago approximately in Myanmar. and uh, today's podcast is around what is happening currently in Myanmar. but we'll also go back and we look at a historical perspective and how it affects india so uh Today's guest is uh, Rami Niranjan Desai. Rami had written an essay uh, in the uh, open magazine on the 8th of December, which was called Manipur Needs to Worry, Myanmar Civil War Threatens the Stability of the Northeast. So, you know, I liked the essay and I told Rami we should talk about it on the podcast. So, Rami, welcome. Thanks for coming.
1: Thanks, Vishal. Thank you for having me again. And uh, giving so much of time to this topic because, like I've always said, eastern frontiers always ignore it.
0: Yeah, I try my best to talk about these subjects as much as I can on the podcast. Uh, uh, I won't say it's very uh, regular, Mm -hmm. but I still am way more regular than most other Indian media houses. Indian media doesn't care uh, by default. So maybe we can structure it like this. We start with the history of Myanmar first and we can go pre-British, then British and then current day uh, as as in post-Indian independence, if I was to draw that as a demarcation line, we can have three of those when the British were there, post-Indian independence and ancient history. So I'll hand it over to you now.
1: Thank you, Kushal. Uh, That's a huge, huge subject, you know, because uh, uh, Burma, like, uh, you know, Myanmar, like any other uh, civilization, uh, ancient civilization, has so much that has gone on, you know, throughout its history. Of course, I'm not a historian, but, you know, because the Northeast region interests me, Myanmar obviously, you know, interests me as well. And um, with the recent developments in Myanmar, it's not the first time that this has happened. This has happened many times before. You know, there have been political upheavals, but with the recent developments in Myanmar, with the situation in the Northeast with what we're seeing happening in Manipur, you know, it's also encouraged me a little bit more to go deeper into the history of Myanmar, you know, uh, which also, you know, like I've done this with the Northeast as well. I've always looked at the ancient civilizational connections of the region with the rest of the country, cover material from scriptures. And I kind of began to do that with Myanmar as well only so that it gives us a sense of continuity, you know, and continuity that is long broken and long forgotten. You see uh, Myanmar being where it's positioned, as it's positioned and, uh, you know, has always had many, many different races that have been attracted to it from all these different directions. As we've spoken before, you know, it's a hugely important, important place for us because it gives us access to Southeast of Asia, you know, and therefore it was a hugely important place for a lot of countries that surrounded it, because not only did it give access to Southeast Asia, but it gave some of the other countries access to India as well, to China as well, and these are where a lot of the trade wars were fought, you know, the the fertile uh, plains of Irawadi, Chinwin River, also attracted many people, not just from India, but from other countries as well you know, uh, the Irrawaddy River has played a major, major uh, role in the trade route uh, towards development for many successive uh, uh, agencies. Um, And this river is navigated, you know, you can navigate it right up to upper Burma. So it's very strategically located as well. You know, also uh, Myanmar is very rich in uh, uh, forests, which, you know, we've, we will see later Has played, you know, in the forest, in a lot of other uh, earth materials, critical earth materials, which is now in today's day played a very major role, you know. But earlier on also, you know, there was great usage for the kind of, uh, you know, natural resources that Myanmar had to offer, you know. And therefore, this kind of migration always veered towards Myanmar, you know, and the from India, it was natural, you know, and therefore systems of philosophy, kingship, both Hindu and Buddhist, customary laws, mythology, literature, art, all of it traveled. <clears throat> all of it traveled into Myanmar, from India. Now, you know, we've also had uh, the colonialists, which we'll come to later, travel from the same routes into Myanmar. but before that, you know we've had a very special history. Uh, and that history uh, largely historians divide it into the pre Pagan period, Pagan period, post Pagan period, you know, which is, uh, let's say the pre Pagan period is about first millennia to the 10th, you know, the next is from the 10th, you know, to a couple of hundred years after that. And then, you know, the rest is recent history. Now, when you look at, you know, the Burmese also had uh, many chronicles. Uh, where there is this sort of literature available, so you look at the chronicles. Uh, it's called Rajavams, you know, which was written by Prince Abhiraj. You know, he, you know, when you look at these sort of uh, chronicles, you realize uh, the kind of Indian influence that Myanmar had in ancient times. You know, he built a city called Hastinapur, uh, and that is in the modern region of Um uh, The ruins apparently still exist. I've never had the opportunity to travel there. But, uh, you know, it was first founded by a German archaeologist in around, I think, around 1890. And uh, he dated it to about uh, the early 5th century. And uh, like I said, it was called Hastinapur, which is uh, uh, possible that it was built by migrants from there, which is what you know, we have to take all of this with a little bit of pinch of salt, you know, it's not exact, but these are the kind of uh, you know, uh, these are the, you know, it's like a little map and we can put it together you know, but uh, uh, as uh, time passed there were multiple, multiple dynasties that kept coming in, kept influencing and Mama as you know, is a huge country, you know uh, thickly forested you know, it has some You know, uh, sort of geographical terrain, which is difficult uh, uh, to uh, sort of conquer in its entirety. So there were many, many small kingdoms. You know, there's the, I've often mentioned Hwan Singh because I find Hwan Singh very interesting. I've mentioned him in my research in the Northeast as well because Hwan Singh was the one who came from Harshwartan's court into uh, uh, Pascal Barman's court and wrote some of the things that he observed in the kingdom that we still refer to today. So the same way Huan Singh mentions several Hindu kingdoms in Burma. Uh, and she, uh, he said Shetra being one of the capital cities, again, a Sanskrit word. Uh, also, the Tang Chronicle of China informs us, and this is, I think, about uh, 880. AD. It informs us about how um, Burmese art, uh, artists, musicians went to the court To the Chinese court and played music and sang in Sanskrit. Um, If we look at, uh, let's say Arakan also today, you know we know Arakan from the, uh, uh, from ARSA, the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army. You know a lot of us who observe these areas know that by the insurgent groups that come from these areas. But you know Arakan also in ancient times had its own independent history. You know. It uh, had, uh, uh, you know, Ramvati and Bhadrevati as its capitals. Again, you know, taking us back to the uh, the, taking us back to the Sanskrit uh, uh, influence on these areas, the Indian influence in these areas. Local chronicles place the foundation of these kingdoms to about three thousand BC. You know, so again, like I said, you have to take it with a little bit of. uh, you know, pinch of salt. But, you know, the dynasty, they said, came from the Chandra Surya uh, bunch. And uh, therefore, the names which we still have are Ras Chandra, Deva Chandra, Pritha Chandra, Sarita Chandra, uh, uh, names like that, you know. And uh, they named their capital also. They had uh, another capital. They named it Raishali. So, you know, uh, they say that there were many diplomatic uh, uh, and a lot of... Uh, Cultural religious ties with India. And there are um, uh, iconography, idols of the Hindu pantheon of gods, inscriptions in Sanskrit, uh, temple ruins. Um, there are all of these things that sort of support this argument, you know. Uh, to go on further, uh, there have been, and, you know, all of these play a great role later, you know, because these are all the states that we know today that are in. A state of severe conflict of insurgency. Uh, who are taking part in a civil war against uh, the military junta? You know, Lower Burma. You know now, which is known as Mon State. You know, also was called uh, uh, you know Hansabati, You know, and uh, you know they had their again. They had their own uh, Manus uh, Swaeta. Their concept of Devraj. You know. Uh, their few kings were, had interesting names like Dharmapala, uh, you know, so on and so forth. You know, these guys introduced advanced cultivation irrigation system, which in that region they hadn't seen before, you know. And uh, they say that uh, their king, King uh, Anirudh uh, of uh, Pagan, who was a part of these areas, who taken over these areas, was the first unifier of Myanmar. You know, because it had so many different ethnicities, it had so many different peoples, was so much of migration. That um, and this was around the 11th century AD. So you know, to have uh, a king who can unify all of Myanmar, you know, as we have seen today, it's been so difficult to keep Myanmar together. You know, whether there's been a democratic government, whether there's been a, uh, you know, whether there's been a uh, the military junta. You know, this has been a difficult proposition. So this is really a page in history where, in uh, you know, this king managed to bring all of these people together and have a unified empire. You know, uh, and of course, you know, I can go on about the kind of nationalism there was. You know, the kind of colonial uh, historians, anthropologists who had made some astute observations. Again, coming to the uh, fact that. Uh, a lot of uh, our understanding, anthropological understanding of communities, just like we discussed in our last talk um, in the Northeast, uh, comes from the British lens, you know. So even in Myanmar, that was so. Of course, there have been other people who've done work. R.C. Majumdar has done work on this as well. You know, there have been other Indian historians who've done work on the importance of Myanmar to our civilizational continuity. But generally, you know, the the archaeological uh, findings uh, were brought in by the British, you know, because their historians were looking at Myanmar with great interest. You know, they didn't really think of going into Myanmar at the outset. You know, it was just observation. But, uh, of course, which we, you know, come to in a bit, you know, after the Anglo-Burmese War, you know, it became a part of their imagination. But, you know, this was a uh, this was a, uh, maybe a tactic also that was followed by the British, you know. For example, the northeastern frontier also wasn't a part of their imagination for a very, very long time. It was, of course, also very far. But it wasn't a part of their imagination for a very long time. It was the historians and anthropologists who first went in, reported their findings back to the Asiatic Society, which was run by Risley at that point, And the same thing we see happen in Myanmar as well, you know. Uh, But of course, you know, material evidence also suggests that uh, Buddhism arrived by the fourth century, uh, but yet Hinduism also continued uh, side by side. And by 1300 AD, uh, uh, Buddhism was firmly established. But, you know, Hinduism also had key roles, you know, for example, uh, cremation was widely practiced. Uh, the court advisors were the Brahmins. Uh, you know there were uh, Vedic rites that were practiced by the ruling classes. Um, even uh, marriages, uh, there was uh, some amount of traditional continuity that we see with the Hindu system. Uh, even the varna system has been mentioned multiple times. Again, um, Sanskrit, you know. Uh, There's there's a British uh, gentleman called Sir uh, A. uh, Pear, and he um, noted that Sanskrit was a court language, Pali was also used, and uh, all these Burmese chronicles, uh, like Rajwams, were in the Pali language. Uh, Of course, you know, we have to look at the downfall also of these systems because. You know, when you read all of this, it seems like a highly evolved, highly developed, but also a highly complex um, system, uh, you know, and a country. Um, And uh, I believe that, you know, all the kind of expansionist ideas and plus all the migration, the kind of invasions that it had, you know, would have led to a disintegration or the inability to be able to. Keep control of uh, all of Myanmar by one single entity, you know, but um, having said that, uh, coming back to, uh, I spoke about uh, uh, Amirudh, uh, King Amirudh uh, being the unifier, you know, uh, again, if you read his history, highly evolved, you know, great military tactics, uh, uh, built temples, canals. You know, uh, focused on economic growth, um, extended his domain, um, greatly expansionist and married. They say he married an Indian princess, you know. Of course, we can only uh, speculate from where, uh, but uh, possibly from uh, Bangladesh, you know, uh, and uh, continued this tradition of this continuity between India and India. Uh, Uh, Myanmar. Um, But, you know, we also have to look at it that this kingdom was isolated from its geographical neighbors uh, in a way, and the growing influence of uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the growing influence of Mongol over resources, uh, you know, a lot of the invasions by the Mongols, the Tatars, you know, all sort of came together in creating a complex Uh, political situation even at that time and uh, the succeeding centuries that we have seen has been a repetition of what we saw in ancient times you know Um, there was another uh, uh, expansionist ruler called uh, uh, Bainong, you know the names are very difficult uh, to pronounce so forgive me if I'm pronouncing them wrong but again you know he rose back again in the mid-16th century. So, you know, Myanmar is a story of decline and rise, the decline and rise. You know, we see that today also, you know, if we might look at it, and of course there is instability, but there's always been a rise as well, you know. So, um, again, in the 16th century, he rose and uh, uh, he was a great uh, expansionist ruler who waged relentless wars in order to gain, you know, larger and larger territory and you know his aggression was admired by military rulers, even post uh, Myanmar's independence. And uh, upon his death in, uh, uh, you know, sixteenth century, and I think he was quite old by those standards. He was about seventy years old. You know, he his rule had stretched all over Burma, Thailand, and Laos, which is enormous you know but uh, of course with this sort of expansionism what also happens is that it's very difficult to keep these kingdoms intact and therefore with his death you know it started falling apart you know the successive rulers could not really uh keep what he had expanded to intact and you know therein began, you know began this little you know uh, 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 this decline, and uh, by the you know by you know and again there was a rise as well, but you know this is how Burma moved, and you know um, by eighteen twenty four that is exactly what would pit Burma against the British, because it was again the the expansionist nature that countered the British, wherein. It resulted in the first Anglo Burmese War that was between 1824 and 1826. And again, it was fought to regain territory that Burma had, you know, wrested away from India. So, you know, this ancient, what we see in the first, second, third Anglo Burmese War, you know, to me, and, you know, this is completely, you can argue we do this, but to me, it's this sort of cyclical nature of what has been the history of Burma, wherein, you know, it expands, it contracts, it expands, it contracts, you know, that brought it to this position. And uh, you know, that's what we saw with the first Anglo Burmese war as well. Now, you know, with that first Anglo Burmese war, faced with, you know, Myanmar was faced with this powerful China in the Northeast, you know, there was a resurgent Shan state in the southeast, there was uh uh you know there were all these military expeditions that were happening. And uh, they decided, uh, King Bodhupaya decided that he wanted to turn westwards for his expansion. You know, so he, at that point, he conquered Arakan, he and Manipur, you know, he went after, you know, that time what was considered Assam. And, you know, and obviously the borders were not really well defined. Uh, the borders have never been very well defined. So it wasn't a new thing. Um, but uh, the British, as far as I'm concerned, would never really great And so I think this is something that we've seen post-independence also. So even at that time, you know, it, you know there was politics over the borders. But yes, they did uh, invade. And when they invaded, and we spoke about this last time, is where, you know, the British advent in manipur also begins because that's when the British were called in to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, to help defeat uh, the Burmese who had entered. And, uh, you know, this is when the British also got their grip on the northeast. Um, and because the First Anglo-Burmese War was fairly conclusive, it was also a devastating war. Because such a conclusive war comes with its own costs. And, you know, it lasted over two years. And it cost uh, £13 million, which was the longest and the most expensive war in British Indian history. I think I mentioned this last time as well. It was so expensive that I don't think I could calculate what it would mean right now. But I think some people have calculated it as staggering. But, uh, you know, interestingly, it was this first Anglo-Burmese War that uh, actually began the decline of the British Empire as well, because it cost them so much. But um, what they did, because now obviously they had to, you know, uh, build up uh, their resources, the amount of money that they had spent, they crushed Myanmar for years because they put like uh, an indemnity. And uh, Burma had to pay this indemnity, which literally was unaffordable. And I think it was about uh, a million pounds. Uh, so this was absolutely unaffordable for Myanmar. And that's where the crunch really started. And uh, it's a very sad history because, you know, two to countries that fought, you know, the decline started for both the countries with this first Anglo-Burma war. You know, the second war also was a very murky thing, you know, the second Anglo-Burmese war, uh, uh, you know, it was the second of the three. And uh, again, was uh, uh, you know, resulted in British victory. And the Burmese territory being annexed to British India. Now at that time it was British India, you know, they had separated it. Um, You know, they unilaterally seized Pago province, but you know, in the light that it happened, again, is sad because in 1852, Commodore George Lambert uh, was dispatched uh, to Burma by Lord Dalhousie to deal with some of the minor issues they were having with the Treaty of Yandobo, which was signed, you know. And uh, a lot of it was to do with the kind of indemnity they had to pay, the kind of taxes they had to pay. And, you know, uh, like I just said, it was unaffordable. So there were obviously problems with that. But there was also, you know, some trade issues and so on and so forth, you know. But um, uh, the Burmese uh, made concessions by, uh, uh, they made concessions by removing the governor. And this was made, you know, this was made the castle's belly by the company, you know. So this became the cause of the Second uh, Anglo-Burmese War. And, you know, it's funny because Dalhousie also mentioned in a letter of his that this Commodore was a combustible Commodore. So he wasn't really the greatest guy to go and you know, negotiate or, uh, you know, bring about some amount of, uh, uh, you know, peace to the situation that had uh, obviously arisen, you know, to the extent that they had to send somebody there. But, uh, you know... Uh, uh, provoked by uh, a naval confrontation, and so on and so forth, the blockading of the Port of Rangoon, you know, the uh, King of Pagan's ship being taken away, you know, this war broke out. But, you know, it's funny, because if you read some of the uh, British uh, literature to this war, you realize, and, you know, this is also applies to a lot of other situations that have happened in India uh, during colonial times. We have to remember that colonialism or colonizing countries was not like hugely accepted by uh, the locals in uh, uh, Europe, you know, because uh, a lot of people thought that, you know, this sort of interference was wrong and any sort of, uh, you know, deeper interference would cause societies to break up and communities to suffer and their own indigenous practices to suffer, religions and faiths to suffer. You know, therefore, a lot of media at that time was also controlled. So the kind of, uh, you know, the the kind of circumstances that was relayed back to Great Britain was not really representative of the true uh, situation on ground, you know. So even in this situation, you know, the Second you know the Second War, you know it. It, it didn't seem to me, at least, that um, the reasons were really, really, uh, you know, uh, you know, these were really good enough reasons to go to war. And it seems like this was exactly what was not not relayed back as well. You know, it, it, you know, it was uh, the media media was told that it was greater than it was, you know, the reasons for the war were greater than they were. But of course, we know this British habit, you know, the third Anglo-Burmese war, also known as the Third Burma War, uh, was in 1885. And, uh, you know, the resistance to this war was sporadic, it continued to 1887, You know, it was obviously the final war between the Burmese and the British. The war saw the loss of the sovereignty of independent Burma. uh, And uh, the Kanpao dynasty, whose rule had already been reduced in terms of territories, saw, you know, uh, saw this, you know, saw the country being annexed, you know. And uh, following the war, the British came uh, under the rule of the British Raj and uh, became, you know, as a province of British India. Uh, from 1937, the British government, Burma, as a separate colony, you know, until Burma achieved independence, But initially it was a part of British India. You know, they then later obviously found it difficult to govern it because, you know, this just became, you know, a large, you, you know, really formidable territory. And therefore, there you know it was governed separately. But by the time of the third war in 1885, uh, you know, which resulted in this total annexation, you know, there were many other factors that were also at play. You know, the uh, uh, the British didn't really look at Burma like many other regions. Like I've said this about the Northeast also, the British didn't really look at. Burma as a territory that they necessarily wanted to control for the sake of control or they needed to bring uh, tribal communities under their control. But they saw it as a market that they needed to capture and as a backdoor to lucrative trade with China. And this was one of the biggest reasons, you know. Um, We must remember this is also the time when the British were, uh, and this, is similar to the forest laws that they brought in into India also that they were looking for more and more timber, you know. This is what was powering their, you know, explorations. This is what was powering their shipbuilding industry, you know. So that was another reason. But of course, you know, the British always had their eyes on China. They always had their eyes on the trade route, and therefore, this was a great lucrative uh, proposition for them, you know. And then, uh, typically, as the British. Did anywhere colonialists did anywhere? You know, it's not just the British, but you know, every other con- colonial power. You know, they uh, inadvertently meddled with the systems that uh, ancient civilizations had, countries had. You know, systems of administration, systems of kinship, systems of uh, uh, functioning. You know, um, and um, that's what happened in Myanmar as well. A lot of changes were made. You know. Uh, they'd already had, you know, Indians trained in the civil services. They, you know, had them in uh, positions of uh, at least some amount of power, you know. And they brought a lot of Indians in to fill in these jobs, you know. And um, this bred some amount of resentment, uh, which we see in later history of Myanmar, take shape, you know, these roots of uh, divide and rule that was sown by the British and Myanmar itself as its results, you know, which we've seen over and over again with, you know, uh, extreme nationalism that has taken place, you know. But of course, you know, uh, Myanmar was known for its agriculture, you know, it was known uh, for its rice and became the world's largest exporter for rice, uh, you know, but the resistance to British will Um, But um, the British also used a lot of heavy-handedness, you know, and that heavy-handedness um, destroyed many villages, you know, because they wanted to halt guerrilla warfare. You know, you also saw missionary networks. You know, what we spoke about the Northeast earlier on, there's a lot of similarities in Myanmar as well, you know, and um, Religion was also seen as one of the ways to tame, uh, uh, you know, uh, tribal communities that weren't in their favor, who were resisting uh, the British influence, you know, and uh, uh, you know this sort of uh, heavy-handedness on uh, the guerrilla activity that uh, the British saw also had, also has later on resulted in. You know, this sort of discontent that we see and the problems that we see even happen today. But other than that, the divide and rule policy of British governments between the ethnic groups, one being favored over the other, uh, creating clashes of loyalties is something that, uh, you know, again, we see repercussions of it today, but something that we had already seen in India. You know, and therefore the uh, result of the British uh, rule in uh, uh, Myanmar, um, you know, had huge impacts on how um, the people of Myanmar looked at themselves, what they aspired for, you know, um, even though the colonial government made law and order the priority, you know, just so that they could carry out their interests without any interference you know, that law in order was not suited to what uh, Myanmar was. And, you know, they didn't understand the aspirations of the Myanmaris and the ethnic identities that played in these regions. Now, you know, uh, like I've said, you know, any discussion of Burma also has to address the policies of uh, greater India because, you know, it's, it, it, they took from here, they applied there and they applied in Some other places also, you know, but uh, the British uh, basically realized that was in the interest to subdue any surrounding areas perceived to be hostile um, by any means whatsoever. You know, whether it's threat or economic, uh, you know, sort of infrastructure, Um, but um, the vast naval superiority of the British Empire, especially in the proximity of the Indian Ocean, yet consolidate this British regional hegemony. And I think that is very, very important for us to know. But uh, like I was saying, the British policies uh, caused significant problems and the British had no knowledge of uh, the Burmese, relied heavily on uh, Indian assistance. You know, the little bit of knowledge that they had, you know, came from the anthropologists, came from the historians. It's not as if their first connection to the uh, Burmese was with the Anglo-Burmese war. Like I said, you know, anthropologists have gone and historians have gone in as early as the 17th century, you know, there'd been some missionary advent also, but, you know, it just wasn't as focused as it was in India. They had a lot more knowledge about India um, before they, you know, started colonizing territories than they had about uh, Myanmar, you know, the most of the wealth generated from the British policy, you know, also remember either stayed in the hands of the colonial powers or, you know, may have come back, uh, you know, to help, uh, uh, consolidate India and to you know keep India going because that was their priority so as a result um, you know there was this sort of uh, uh, of course there was resistance towards the British but there was this uh, you know it began this sort of uh, competition with Indians as well you know the Chettiar's were the Indian money lenders as you know yes. from this past you know yep. who were in Myanmar and we all know how successful they were you know And there were other many other businessmen like this who also we must remember a lot of them uh, traveled directly, but a lot of them went by the Northeastern route also. You know, Manipur itself has a formidable population in uh, Myanmar. You know, so they were successful businessmen. They were given contracts. They were given contracts by the British to build the infrastructure, to build roads, you know, so on and so forth, you know. So, uh, you know, this sort of uh, uh, competition that arose uh, arose because the seeds were sown by the British policies. For them, it was just really just important to go in and make the most of this, you know, territory that they have found. And you know, later on, when we continue to discuss this into present times, you know, even today, if you look at it, you know, like Associated Press News did that article, which you know, you so kindly have referred to the article that I've written and have referred to the Associated Press, uh, uh article in that, uh, wherein they've called it the Sacrifice Zone, and that's exactly what it is today to the Western past, what it was, you know, in history to the Western past. So nothing has changed, you know, but obviously, um, post the advent of the British, and then once the, you know, uh, British left uh, Myanmar, you know, the political development of Myanmar then suffered, you know, because... There were multiple rebellions, there were multiple nationalistic movements, you know, uh, uh, there was instability, there was ethnic identity struggles. And this is um, the prolonged emotional process that Myanmar went through at that point, you know, under the British rule. We are seeing, again, the results of that.
0: So, two, three things that uh, one needs to understand. Okay, I understand the British did not understand Myanmar, but then who did is a very natural question that should be asked. Who did?
1: See, I don't don't think anybody did. You know,
0: I think, uh,
1: you know, our, our connection, our civilizational connection, and it's a good question. I think we all must endeavor to answer that. But, you know, our civilizational connection was broken You know, and, you know, civilizational, such ancient civilizational connections are often broken, you know, with time. Uh, But, you know, that was testimony to the fact that there was that kind of relationship, you know. But later on, our engagement with Myanmar was this kind of, you know, uh, uh, Burma expanding, us pushing back, um, you know, Manipur pushed back and Manipur was, you know, some of the greatest warriors, you know. And uh, they took over some territory, then, you know, the Myanmaris took some territory back. So this went back and forth, you know. So that was our engagement, you know, in recent history, you know. So it's difficult to, you know, really understand countries like this. Even today, I say this, uh, that uh, we don't understand uh, Myanmar, you know. Uh, I actually met somebody, there's a little anecdote. I actually met somebody recently, and they came in and they said, "We're you know, we're a think tank and you look at geopolitical strategic situations. I said, Oh, wonderful, wonderful. You know, so what do you think is happening in Myanmar? You know, because the Northeast is really getting affected. He said, No, no, we don't look at the uh, we don't look at Myanmar, we look at the Northwestern frontier. This is our problem. <laughs> you know, you're seeing that you're a think tank, you're saying that you're you know, you're looking at um, geopolitics. How can you not look at Myanmar? And that's always been an issue, I find. I think it is so complex, even, you know, even names, you know, uh, pronunciations, uh, the constant changing uh, political dynamics, you know, you have to concentrate on it solely to be able to understand it. And I think uh, because there's Western interest in the Northwestern frontier, uh, there's never been any interest in the Northeastern frontier. And maybe this could also be designed, Why designed, that while we are... Focused on the northwestern frontier, you know, the new great game East happens on the northeastern frontier.
0: All right, fair enough. Now let us look at what's happening right now. As you know, in your essay, you talk about uh, the, the takeover. So, what is the current political history of Myanmar now? Uh, how long was there uh, a military rule? Then how long did the military rule get overturned? How long did it take for the overturning back to status quo? What, what happened there?
1: You know, it's happened, it's happened so many times that I possibly don't have it on my fingertips. But, you know, if I was to give you just an overview of what has happened post-independence, uh, let me say that, you know, in the 20th century, multiple rebellions had broken out you know and uh, it was when the british was still there in 1910 uh, that the cultivators took up arms in saigon which is just you know across uh, uh, india uh, and a uh, few years later uh, there were other peoples in you know other territories and an insurrection emerged uh, and this insurrection emerged in a way which, you know, became one of the most important, formidable rebellions. Um, there's a very famous uh, story of uh, Sayasan uh, who was a physician, and uh, it's called, uh, you know, he was a former monk and then became a leader. He was a physician, very educated, you know, and it's uh, the 1930-32 uh, rebellion, in British Burma is actually called the sayasan Rebellion. Uh, these were a series of uprisings where, basically, he was so touched by what he had seen in terms of the poverty, the suffering, that he came down to the conclusion that, um, and only an armed rebellion can really, um, you know, change things. You know, and. Um, he also published several works outlining his ideas and, you know, what, what he thought of, uh, you know, the traditional practices, especially medical practices, as he was a physician. Um, but uh, you know, he eventually joined what was called the GCBA, General Council of Burmese Association, which was uh, being put in charge of a research project dealing with British policies. And he looked at it and he said, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, what are they doing to my country? And, um, you know, uh, uh, you know the kind of national consciousness and economic distress that he sh- saw all kind of uh, made him a little bit, you know, uh, not a little bit, but fairly uh, concerned, you know. And uh, the momentum created by the insurrection, you know, was what heightened tensions and provided momentum for nationalist movements. And um, that's when... The British started to pay, pay closer attention to the internal situation of Burma. And this was also the time when, because they were so ignorant of what was happening, you know, they were so focused on trade, they were so po- focused on keeping the power intact, that ultimately they, you know, their avoidance of looking at internal matters created a breed of re- Younger nationalists, known as the Thakins, you know, and they emerged on the scene, and everything changed, you know. But uh, you know, uh, uh, what we uh, commonly uh, now know as the Thakins, you know, became the changing point from what you know we understand, you know, to counter not just the British, to but to create an independent. Uh, Burma you know so uh, the Thakins was a Burmese nationalist group you know it was formed around the 30s you know like I said you know it was formed of a lot of intellectuals now whenever intellectuals come together you know this is this becomes a formation that is difficult to counter you know because uh, they understand strategies they understand tactics you know and um Uh, you know, a a political party was established and it was called Pathong and that was established in the late 30s. And, uh, you know, they brought together traditionalist Buddhist nationalist elements. They brought, because they were young, they brought fresh political ideas, political consciousness. They created support uh, bases among students. Um, You know, even the uh, national song the country's first national song and eventually its national anthem uh was the party song you know so that became one of the uh most important movements the song became also a national symbol during the japanese occupation of burma and uh, uh you know of course then you know it became the national anthem but you know this was uh like I said, this was the sign of the first resistance and the first formidable resistance. You know, um, they did strikes, they did anti-tax protests. You know, uh, monks played a prominent role. Uh, they led to armed rebellion. Um, Rangoon University was a hotbed of um, radicalism. And uh, they got a lot of support from there. um gained prominence from this movement. And, uh, you know, even the idea of national autonomy gained prominence from this movement. And, uh, you know, that's when uh, the start of the Second World War saw, you know, the administration of Burma and, you know, being separated, da-da-da-da-da. But, you know, let me say this, you know, that all of this became actually the foundation for the disturbances that we see today, because, you know, all these early movements, very much like, you know, early movements in other countries as well, you know, had to go to other countries for support. You know, so San co founded the Communist Party of Burma, you know, he sought contact with the Chinese communists, uh, the Japanese authorities got to him first. You know, they promised uh, military training and support for a national uprising. You know, the Thakins were credited for the uh, credited for the formation of the Burmese Independence Army. You know, even right now, when I went to Japan and I was speaking to some former military people, they said, "Yeah, you know, you know, we are so concerned about Myanmar, what, and to think that we trained some of their first, you know, officers, their first resistances, you know." So, you know, this sort of training, this sort of, you know, um, formations kept taking place. And there were always somebody or another who was willing to help them out just to counter a common enemy. You know, these 30 Thakins who went for military training were also then known as the the, the Thakin comrades or the 30 comrades, you know. And um, um, they became the founding members of the Burma Independence Army, which later would have thousands of people. And um, when the Japanese invaded Burma in 1941 and early 1942, the BIA marched uh, with the Japanese to expel the British. You know, that's the kind of formations that took place. Uh, We've seen again, uh, to draw parallels, you know, we've seen some of this happen, you know, remember the INA. you know. So, you know, there was always this kind of... uh, Formations, this kind of combinations that were happening, which would later historically have great repercussions on uh, the political situation that we see today, you know, because it fragmented so many groups who had so many aspirations and separate aspirations, separate political ideologies, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the Aung San as we all know you know uh, eventually managed to negotiate burma's independence and in 1947 uh, uh you know uh, they got their uh, 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 independence um and therefore you know that's when actually the political trajectory started but you know um uh you know took over the reins but from the very outset you know, this was the first government formation that happened. But from the very outset, you notice that you know, government faced many challenges. You know, there were communist factions, there were ethnic groups, you know, who felt excluded. You know, um, there was, a, a, you know, had a Buddhist vision, you know, and um, the communists couldn't reconcile to that. This, you know, began insurgencies. Already a lot of uh, the ethnic communities had been involved, as I mentioned earlier, in guerrilla tactics, you know. Uh, um, you know, we did, uh, you know, we also know you had the KMT in uh, northern Burma, which had, you know, which was the Chinese nationalist forces, you know. So there was all of this happening. It was impossible. You know, in the international arena, no sought cooperation while steering his country in a non-aligned course, you know. Um, there was civil war raging in many parts of the country. It's just the way it's raging today. You know, the 1950s, they say, was a progressive decade for Burma, you know, with the economy uh, beginning to recover. But again, you know, all of this was short-lived. You know, the political schisms in this country and at that time within the ruling AFPFL was such that, um, you know, Uh, that it was impossible to keep uh, governments together, you know, and that has been, uh, Kushas, some of the, uh, maybe one of the most important reasons that there's been so much of this back and forth, you know, democracy comes in, military rule takes over, military rule takes over, democracy tries again, you know, because the political schisms that was sown During the British rule, and I know I keep coming back to the British rule here, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't other influences, you know. Of course, as we now see stories unfold and as now situations and, you know, world demands change, the influences also change, you know. uh, Many countries have more, you know, investments and vested interests in a country like Myanmar But, you know, eventually we have to understand that, you know, the political uh, history of this country actually starts uh, from what they had learned from the British, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, this is something that we see over and over happen. So, you know, uh, I'm sure we can, you know, find all the chronological order online, you know, but... Let me say this: You know, the constitution has been suspended many times. Opposition political parties have been banned. Uh, we've seen, you know, the kind of house arrest that we've seen. Press is muzzled. Um, you know, uh, we've seen uh, uh, we've seen a lot of political ideologies come in democracy: the opening up of Myanmar, the closing down of Myanmar, socialism, communism. You know, so it's been a very complex political history. However, you know, because you asked why this happens, you know, this was, this was just the basic early history, the political history. But, you know, you have to understand, you know, the constitution was also changed. The constitution was changed for 25% of the seats to be of the military juntas, You know, so therefore, those are their permanent 75% agreement you need, you know, so you need uh, 75% votes to be able to make any amendments. You know, therefore, it becomes very difficult to displace the junta. The junta also, you know, uh, keeps ministries that belongs to them. It also uh, uh, owns uh, a lot of uh, assets. You know, um, so, you know, all of this makes it very difficult to keep, you know, to keep a stable form of governance or to allow another form of government to come in because this is what the constitution is.
0: Now, the one question I have to ask here is like, okay, I get the British did this, the British did that. But I mean, they've gone now, right? But the political situation in in Myanmar just doesn't seem to improve Uh, the tribal conflicts over there or the tribal adjacent conflicts. Uh, There are religious conflicts over there, too. But the point is that, you know, for how long will the British did this analysis being given for Myanmar? See, you know.
1: We can say for how long, but the fact is, when the government's governance model or the prolonged idea of political identities are rooted from there, you have to keep going back there. You know, of course, you'll say, "Oh, yeah," but it's been seventy years, and things should change. No, but you know, the identities have become so formidable now. You know, there is so much of vested interest. Like I said, the situations are changing. See, the British sowed the seeds for this sort of discontent, you know, the poverty, the uh, economic instability, uh, the manipulation of natural resources, but also the ethnic tribal identities that they forged and played the divide and rule game with, you know, is something that has to be the foundation of understanding this. Now, over and above that, you know, when we say what is happening now, You know, that is an important question. And that is a question that interests me as well. See, the instability is already there. Right. But today, if you look at it, the kind of interests, the kind of vested interests that Western powers have in Myanmar is shocking. And that is being manipulated. You know, Uh, for example, uh, you know, like I wrote in my uh, article the recent one, that um, if you look at uh, Myanmar, it's one of the four top countries that produces critical earth materials. The Critical earth materials can't be mined everywhere. There are rules and regulations to this mining. and The western countries say that the mining has to be done in such a way that, it, uh, that we don't take from uh, conflict areas. It's like the whole blood diamond sort of scenario. Uh, now, um, they may not Buy directly, but none of their rules say that they can't buy from a second party. You know, now to even mine these minerals, you know, a lot of the mining is in conflict zones, is in insurgency ridden zones where insurgency has existed for time immemorial. You know, since the time that, you know, we've been discussing this history, you know, and I've said that, you know, They'd already become trained in guerrilla tactics, guerrilla warfare, you know. Uh, These are not, again, easy terrains to navigate, you know, so uh, locals can navigate these areas. And therefore, you see, what happens is that uh, either you're paying the guys who are controlling this land to allow you to mine, and in that cycle, they are being paid to keep the insurgency alive. You know, so... So this is, you know, this is a very interesting question. And this is the question that, you know, I try to answer in my article, you know, as to what is the new, what is it keeping, what is keeping it alive? what are, What is funding these insurgencies? Because all insurgencies require money. Where do they get the arms, the ammunition? How do they feed their cadre? You know, there has to be a constant source of money coming in. And if you look at the insurgencies today happening in Myanmar, the kind of equipment that they are using, the kind of drone technology that they are using, the kind of consistency that they have, you know, let me let me say that uh, this is the kind of uh, consistency we haven't seen in a long while. The reason that today we are seeing Myanmar and the situation that it is is because there have been alliances that have come together like never before to counter the junta. Now, why they are countering the junta is, again, comes back to the fact of some amount of, uh, you know, discontent with the government. See, you know, uh, um, Aung San had had promised all of these, you know, uh, groups that their aspirations would be considered you know, but that also kind of got left, you know, somehow that, you know, that was ignored and then he died and, you know, that wasn't fulfilled. You know, the punta really doesn't come with any sort of promise like this. So, either that discontent has become more. They feel that there's no place for them, for these ethnic identities in the larger game of Nama. Number two, um, there isn't, even though it may have been a federal system it doesn't work like that you know the heads of these states the chief ministers as we would call them in india you know are not elected through a parliamentary process it's more like they're selected by the central leadership you know so this is another reason that causes discontent largely you know we have to look behind what is apparent to us and what is not apparent to us is the role of a lot of countries in what where their interests lie. Now, let me tell you about. I'll give you this is as an example. Uh, you know the Rohingya issue. We all know about Arsa. We all know about you know that the you know the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, you know, was created, you know, uh, and armed, and uh, they have been funded. Uh, uh, you know, by ISI earlier on as well. But you know, um, if you look at the reports now, you are seeing more and more reports coming out saying that the Rohingyas are being uh, trained till date to, again in like a, a, a revival of their training by the ISI in Pakistan in the hope that they will create a land that, uh, is a, uh, that uh, has includes parts of uh, Myanmar and Cox's Bazaar, you know, which will become a land for the Rohingyas, you know. So, you know, this is the kind of um, interplay that you see if you look at uh, even America's interests, you know, uh, you look at the interests in Uh, Not just in Myanmar, you can look at the interest in Bangladesh as well. It's the most talked about thing at this point, you know, that they keep talking about democracy. They keep talking about democracy. I find it, you know, I actually find it quite shocking, you know, uh, whether you like Trump or you don't like Trump, the kind of uh, how they are going after him, you know, in terms of ensuring that he cannot stand another term. You know, it's funny that they would virtue signal Bangladesh or Myanmar in terms of democracy. You know, in Bangladesh, they're doing the same thing. They're saying that, oh, you know, we must ensure democracy. Therefore, you know, we are going to put these sanctions and we are going to put, uh, uh, we are going to uh, not get visas to so-and-so people associated to the present dispensation. In Myanmar, they're doing the same thing. They're saying the junta has taken over. We have, uh, you know, we have the Burma 2020 Act. After that, they have multiple other acts, uh, which says that uh, we are going to put sanctions. Who do these sanctions impact? These sanctions impact the locals. These sanctions, no sanction has ever created a government change. You know, sanctions only impact the poorest of the poor. They make the situation worse because these are economic sanctions. You know, it takes away livelihood, you know, but for a Western country to come and say, you know, it's it's also so provocative. You know, there's in the nomenclature, you know, whether you call it Burma or Myanmar shows you, you know, where you're coming from, you know, till Obama's time they called it, you know, he sometimes called it Myanmar, he sometimes called it Burma, you know, just to keep a balance. Now they straight up call it Burma because they know that the junta won't like it. You know, so all their now sanctions are called, Burma 2020, Burma this, Burma that. You know, so there are these vested interests that play a role. I've mentioned again in my article, I've mentioned the, you know, that they have also promised NUG, the National Unity Government, uh, that involves all the democratic forces, that has an office, which is a stone's throw away from the White House. Um, they have also asked for money. Which will probably be given, and it's quite a bit of money to be able to push for democracy, you know. And um, you know, it's reported that uh, half of it is for non-lethal uh, intervention, which makes me question what is the other half for, you know. So this is these are the questions, Kishal. As you rightly asked, we must be asking that, you know, we can point the British, uh, we can point to the British for sowing the seeds of this discontent but why does it continue even now
0: yeah i don't understand the american fetish with uh, freedom and democracy because uh, (laughs) they clearly don't behave like that anywhere Uh, i mean i did a detailed podcast on the american interference in bangladesh it's very fascinating because you do Talk about the American interference in Myanmar also. But okay, now let us focus on at the end of the day, how does all of this, listen, a stable Myanmar, a stable Bangladesh is in India's benefit. That's It's a no-brainer. But like, how do we, now let us only focus on India and what do we try to do? How do we look at all of this? Obviously, there's a Chinese in- interference also in all of this. There is a Chinese angle in everything. You know, China is just sitting in the corner and going, like, huh. <laughs> so no, no, must not let the Chinese
1: feel like
0: that. Yeah, the Chinese <laughs> okay. should not feel left out. But so how does India now let us focus on India? Like A, why do we need a stable Myanmar? And how can it affect our northeast region? Okay, so like again, you rightly said
1: that you know that. Uh, Bangladesh, our neighbor neighborhood countries, Bangladesh, uh, Myanmar, even Nepal, Sri Lanka. You know, all of these countries now with uh, Chinese revisionism, all of these countries, even the island countries that we are not focusing on, Kishan, are hugely important for us. We must not forget this. You know, the stability of our neighborhood, you know, directly translates into our stability. That's why we have the, you know, neighborhood first policy. Um. You know, but obviously, you know, we have to understand what's happened in Myanmar right now. See, Myanmar, you know, obviously not wanting the Chinese to feel ignored, 40% of the debt of Myanmar is owed to China. The minute America puts these sanctions, where do you think China Sorry, Myanmar is going to go, you know, and whether it's not by choice, because there is discontent against the Chinese also in Myanmar, you know, uh, You know, the Burmese nationalism is a formidable form of nationalism. They don't like, you know, uh, as anybody else, you know, would not like over-interference of uh, other nationalities. You know, the same way, they don't like that as well. You know, so there is a counter to Chinese interference. But, like I said, what has happened in Myanmar today has happened after a very long time. See, three years after the military coup in Myanmar, Operation One Zero Two Seven was launched. Now, Operation One Zero Two Seven is the first of the two operations, and it's named after the month and the date that it was launched, ten twenty-seven. You know, and it was launched against the military junta by the Three Brotherhood Alliance members, which was the Arakan Army based in the Rakhine State, the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance MNDAA, from the Kokang region of Shan State, and the Taung uh, National Liberation Army from the Shan State. And, uh, you know, it was so well-organized. We haven't seen anything like this before, you know, because it was well-organized. It was obviously well-funded. They knew that they'd have to stay the course, you know, because the backlash would be tough. And that backlash still hasn't been able to, they haven't been able to get to them, you know. So therefore, you know, somehow the support has been great. Um, They, um, uh, that they managed to attack hundreds of military outposts together police stations they took control of cities they took control of highways and you know this is this is only in literally the first two or three days you know the uh, by the 6th of november um uh, the rebellion had spread to Saigang, uh which is uh, you know across india uh, had moved to Saigang, and uh, the second biggest city um they had taken over now this requires some amount of um, coordination some amount of planning without the junta getting a whiff of it because the junta has its eyes and ears on them you know by the 7th of November because these operations were so successful and that you know literally cities fell one by one you know um uh, highways major highways that would take necessary um, goods to outposts were blocked you know it's never happened before that a second operation was uh, launched and that second operation was operation 1107 again by the date of the launching of the operation and the rest of the insurgent groups joined hands so it's almost like the junta was almost like encircled by insurgents now, what does that mean for India? It means that that insurgency is also across, uh, you know, our borders. I've always said this, uh, Kushal, I've said this before also, that we have to watch Myanmar to see what's happening in India. You know, the northeast region is a very, very porous bordered region. Yet, it has over 1,640 kilometers of uh, uh border area which is unfenced
0: a lot of potential um, infiltration
1: 1640 kilometers and i'm not including the maritime border we have a maritime border also 1640 kilometers of highly forested highly difficult terrains unmanable you can't afford to keep uh, people there to manage you know um just uh, uh, you know recently when the Manipur conflict broke out You know, people started talking about the free movement arrangement that we have with Myanmar, where in either side, from Manipur, you can go 16 kilometers inside. You know that that should be stopped. And now they're stopping it because even that is considered dangerous enough. You know, um, when the Manipur conflict happened in the debates that I was in, you can say what you want to about any political party. I look at this from a different point of view. I look at this from the sole point of view of national security, that's where my interest lies. But, um, you know, I found it that the Congress had a lot of, you know, a lot of commission to come and comment on it. Or Raul Gandhi, go into Manipur and talk about it. When you had not bothered building an inch of defense for your land, you had not bothered, bothered making one inch of border fencing for these areas, that today when a conflict breaks out, which is largely owed to the, issues in Myanmar to the illegal immigrants to the drug trade to the uh, uh, armed insurgency that is coming from these groups in Myanmar that you are commenting on it you know this situation that like we've already discussed Myanmar has been not very stable it's always had problems of insurgency you know it's always had uh, illegal immigration as a situation in terms of you know we've seen the rohingya situation as well, you know, that you never thought that it was necessary to build fencing. Of course, I'm not saying that fencing will solve all your problems. You know, it has, you know, there has to be a combination of fencing, manning, you know, also tech control, you know, wherein, uh, you know, you can have uh, things like facial recognition. You can see uh, whether people who entered have gone back or not, you know, which is something that we've never done. Um, you know, so this makes it uh, very critical for us of what happened there. And if we have news like you know these many insurgent groups taking uh, taking part in this sort of conflict, you know, we also have to realize that a lot of them are not friendly forces to India. You know, if, if you look at uh, the uh, if, if you have to believe the reports that I spoke about of ARSA being trained in. Uh, Pakistan, do you think it will not have a direct impact on us? Where do they want to go? You know, you know, if they make, a, if they make a territory like this, you know, where do, what, what? do you think they're going to launch? They're going to launch against us? You know, there's no love lost. You know, if if we look at, uh, you know, the displacement that will happen, the largest displacement, seventy percent of the displacement, uh, from Saigon has happened towards India. Because where are they going to go? Do you think China, they're going to walk all the way to China? Do you think they're going to make it there? Do you think if they're going to make it there, they're going to be allowed in? Do you think they're interested in going to Bangladesh? No. The easiest, logistically, geographically easiest place and the most welcoming place for them to come in is the Northeast. You know, now the reason here being a, like I said, geographically, you know, it's easier to transit here. Number two, uh, you have transnational ethnic uh relationships. So the same tribes that live on this side of the border live on that side of the border. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, sometimes there is misplaced empathy. Of course, you know, who will not have sympathy for, you know, what you feel is a larger part of your community. But what we have to remember is that in the guise of this sort of, uh, you know, in the guise of this sort of uh, Displaced people. You're also bringing in, you know, the miscreants that you don't want coming in to your country. And who is it affecting? It is at the end of the day, Kushal, affecting the local population of your own states. You know, the uh, the the drug access in these in these areas is so huge today. Um, You know, ever since. You know, they say that Afghanistan used to be the opium den of uh, the world. You know, they say now it's Myanmar and 90% of this being produced is landing up in the northeast and from the northeast. Then it goes to other places. Now, what does that do? You know, uh, it doesn't just... You know, it doesn't just, uh, uh, you know, we can't just say that it impacts the youth and, you know, make some like random statements like this. But this is, you know, it funds insurgency, you know, and we have to be very clear about that. So we have this, you know, we also have this misplaced sort of sympathy for what is happening there, which I don't think, uh, you know, I think we can have it to a certain extent, whereas really the, you know, Uh, people who need refuge, have temporary refuge till things settle down or till we can place them back in better circumstances, you know. But uh, we have to understand the importance of this. Myanmar is India's gateway to Southeast Asia. And it is notorious. It's always been notorious for trafficking, uh, you know, uh, for drug trafficking. And that poses a serious challenge to India's national security. Now, you know, to the East India, like I said, shares, you know, this huge uh, border with Myanmar. Now, Myanmar is the second largest producer of opium, you know, and syn- uh, synthetic drugs, you know, uh, uh, you know, commonly known as ice. You know, that is what they produce there. Some of the, they say that some of the finest quality comes from Myanmar. You know, uh, Shan State, Kachin State, which are conflict-prone areas, you know, and India shares its borders with Kachin, is literally the hub of the production of drugs uh the you know and, uh, as you know that the border is porous, it's very easy to flood these areas with this sort of drug nexus um you know more Manipur. um uh, these used to be the areas uh now they're in the news for other reasons but these used to be the areas uh through which they would transit and um um you know, we've seen that ever since this conflict has broken up, Mizoram has become a landing point of drugs, you know. So earlier on, it would reach more through Myanmar's Tamu city, you know, then flow into Impal, to Nagaland's capital Kohima and Dimapur, and then, you know, it would go into Subnu, Charchandpur, you know, and just like then go into the rest of the country, you know. And um, uh, uh, you know, there's no way once it reaches this side of the North there's no way of controlling it as to where it's going you know, so we have to be uh, very very aware of not just this but also aware that it gives impetus to many other countries so China is reportedly a key player in the flow of drugs to Myanmar you know, um, there are crime syndicates in uh, across the border of China and Myanmar, um, that have huge sort of uh, and and in other regions also that have huge syndicates uh, which distribute these drugs, which manufacture these drugs. And um, you know, therefore there is this sort of incentive for these drugs to further enter India. you know, um, China's had a you know these Ch- Chinese syndicates have had a problem with the Myanmarese government as well but you know have been supported also by them you know so we are in a tough position because either way whoever comes it's not as if these syndicates are de- declining we've seen it over a period of years that these syndicates have just flourished you know um, you know there's a UNODC report that says that the Opium Survey report of Myanmar observed that there was you know a that uh, there was a decrease uh, in opium production to a figure of about 25% you know but it did not mean that this decrease in cons- uh, 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 dec- decrease in production meant decrease in consumption you know which means that at times that there is a decrease you know there is a fulfillment of the requirement coming in from somewhere else And um, the only way that can be stopped is if, um, you know, our borders are sealed and our populations on this side of the border are aware of the kind of influence that, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these insurgent groups carry. Now, 14 percent of the opium that we see, opium production that we see happens also in the chin state. Okay, now we have to understand how important this is. The Chin State, which is in Myanmar, which is across India, has, again, trans-ethnic, you know, uh, transnational ethnic uh, relationships, and uh, you know, for them it becomes easier, because there always be, and this is, I'm not saying, let's get this very clear, you know, there is no blame game here on entire populations. Nobody looks at situations like that, but you will always find a closer base because there will always be some anti-national elements on this side of the border as well, you know. There will always be some vested interests on this side of the border as well. And if you have common uh, ethnic relationships, linguistic commonalities, you know, it will also become easier for you, for, you know, miscreants from this uh, part of the border to this side of the border to miscreants from that side of the border to have relationships and that is what you know any indian national should be you know wary about and not support inadvertently just on the basis of the fact that this is going to be you know some sort of uh uh you know this is some sort of help to you know some long-lost brethren. you know because at the end of the day do you know that hiv aids in manipur and Mizoram is possibly the highest anywhere in the country manipur uh, uh initially it used to be manipur and active rates used to be above the national average of nine point uh zero point three four percent but the statistics of manipur showed that it was 19 nearly 20 percent was because of intravenous use of injecting needles. needles needles yeah exactly you know how sad that is because that's terrible kids. It's young kids and, you know, highest rate of HIV was there because of this needle sharing. You know, so who does it affect? You think, you know, somebody with transnational, uh, you know, ethnic relationships is not going to be affected. Of course, they're going to be affected. You know, everybody is going to be affected and therefore the state and therefore the security of the country is going to be affected, you know. And, uh, you know, it just be very, you know, I've seen this. It was very, very sad because... The age range was the range that is supposed to be working, that is supposed to be at the peak of its career. But unfortunately, once hit by HIV, and you know, I have friends who used to tell me that as they were growing up and they were younger, their parents would tell them this over and over again, you know, because everybody was so petrified. There was this fierce psychosis that, uh, you know, children might get, uh, you know, carried away and, you know, will get HIV. You know, because of this drug use, that, you know, their lunchtime and dinnertime conversations used to be this, you know. But um, having said that, you know, uh, uh, know, D.C., Bangkok office, you know, also disclosed that opium cultivation, which is also a problem, Pushal, uh, that we've seen in this recent Manipur conflict. And as you know, I went into you know, all the cooking-dominated areas. I went into the maize dominated area. You know, in the hills, I saw complete hills that were just barren because they were used for opium cultivation, you know. And uh, like I was saying, that uh, UNODC in 2023, in uh, I'm giving you recent statistics, this is mid-December 2023, uh, stated that in the Northern Shan state followed by Chin and Kachin, the yield of of, uh, this cultivation has expanded from 16% to 23 kilograms per hectare because now they're using sophisticated farming practices. So, you know, we are not dealing with, like, you know, some amount of chota-mota, you know, uh, farmer who's, you know, growing this opium. No, this is now money is being pumped in to grow this, you know. In Myanmar, farmers earn about 75% more from opium farming as, uh, you know, the average price of the flower has reached about $355 uh, per kilogram. And, you know, the cultivation in these areas, like I said, has has increased, the yield has increased, you know, from 40,100 to 47,000 hectares boosting its potential to the highest level that it has ever been so how can we say that this sort of you know any sort of instability in Myanmar will not have a direct impact on us where do you think any of these insurgent groups that function in Myanmar get their money from they get their money from selling these drugs you know so they should ring a well for us, you know, and I'll tell you when Afghanistan was considered, you know, the major area for poppy production, we still had a buffer territory like Pakistan. What buffer territory do we have here? You know, India's western frontier, I've always said, is far easier to navigate than the northeastern frontier, you know, and um, this is exactly why i think we should look more and more at this region i think we should look at um, you know uh, the drug trade i think we should look at uh, the drug wars you know these are well reported we should be looking at uh, the golden triangle and which has been in existence with what is the golden crescent you know and how uh, this narco terrorism you know is going to be the next big Think on our Northeastern borders, you know, forget about the Afghan-Pakistan drug drug trade, you know, that we have enough eyes on. We have no eyes on this, you know. And, um, and you know, they estimate that anyway, in any case, there's been a 95% decline in opium cultivation, uh, you know, after the Taliban has come in, you know. So, you know, where do you think the cultivation is going now? You know, it will obviously be going towards conducive areas like this. You know, other than that, we should also be looking at, um, you know, I've already mentioned the Runia problem, but we should also be looking at, Pashaal, the problem of of this sort of ethnic tribal identity that we have seen come together um, across the borders. You know, this is something that our citizens have to be very, very made very aware of, you know that, uh, you know, that you're a citizen of India, you know, you can have your empathies, but your empathies cannot be misplaced. And uh, if somebody takes an objection to that, or, you know, the laws of the land, you know, come down on this sort of illegal immigration, we, without a doubt, should be on the right side of the law. And without a doubt, we should be on the right side of what is important to our national security, you know. Beyond that, what happens in Myanmar, you know, is a very complex, complex situation that I don't think, you know, we have the wherewithal, you know, to solve because there are now so many vested countries that are involved in it. You know, this whole rare earth critical earth, the price that we are paying for our transition to green technology, which all, you know, the entire Western world wants to be at the forefront from. But they want to be at the forefront of this transition to being green, you know, at the cost of a country that nobody cares for, at the cost of Myanmar. And therefore, I feel that Associate Press News' uh, name for Myanmar, the Sacrifice Zone, is absolutely apt because that's where, you know, elements that light up your computer, elements uh, that light up, uh, you know, your mobile phones. That's the kind of rare earth materials that come from Myanmar, and that is what countries in the West really require. So they don't care what they are doing there. They don't care if their policies are flawed, you know. As long as they look like they are pushing democracy, you know that you know that they are uh, transitioning to green, whatever. You know they don't care about what cost another country has to pay. So I think these are the little you know, pieces of, you know, uh, the jigsaw puzzle that we need to put together in our heads. You know, this um, Burma unified through rigorous uh, 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 Military Accountability Act of 2022. You know, this came after 2020, uh, which was their first sanction. You know, I mean, what does it say? It says that we support the NUG and other ethnic forces opposing the military junta. You know, there's no difference made between whether these are ethnic forces or these are insurgent groups you know also as far as i'm concerned my question to them is you know what is your business you know to be interfering in the first place but however you know this complex you know situation again is not new you had a little while ago asked me about why should we keep blaming the british you know, it's not just the British, it's the West, you know. Um, uh, you know, we, we've we seen even post-independence of Myanmar, we've seen, you know, the CIA involvement, you know, at least this has been reported uh, widely in, uh, you, you know, being involved in these regions. Uh, even in India, you had, you know, uh, there were reports of the Naga insurgency being, you know, um, and I think this was an ICSSR uh, uh, paper and multiple other papers also that had spoken about the U.S. CIA involvement in the Naga insurgency. You know, the Naga insurgency also got its roots through transnational ethnic loyalties, uh, you know, which they forged across Myanmar and went to China for their training. You know, um, uh, it's even been said that the U.S. continued to be the patron and supplier of arms and ammunition to insurgent groups, not just in the Northeast, but also in Myanmar. You know, so these are obviously, you know, these are reports that we've read over and over again. You know, it's been reported in the news. Uh, You know, it was even said that uh, uh, the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Myanmar was the watch station, you know, for the CIA. That's also been said. You know, uh, uh, Myanmar has borne the brunt of foreign interference like many other countries has, has, you know, in the 50s. Also, CIA supported the KMT uh, in the 80s. They gave uh, funds and training uh, to pro-democracy forces in Thailand. You know, the minute you arm civilians, you know, the minute you start doing this, you create a problem that lasts forever. You know, today they want to support the NUG, the National Unity Government, which also has other democratic forces a part of it. They call them. Uh, you know, the uh, insurgent groups, some of them are insurgents, you know, you can look at it from whatever lens, but they call them EAOs, you know, ethnic armed organizations. You know, they have all come together and like I mentioned earlier, they've asked for $500 million in need, you know, $200 million in non-lethal humanitarian aid. You know, so, you know, this raises a lot of questions and that's what we should be really, really worried about now. You know, let me also add this. Rashad, mm-hmm. that that us is not the only one between us UK EU they have imposed over 26 rounds of sanctions on Myanmar who do you think that is affecting you know mm-hmm. in, that, that has not only exasperated the insurgency in Myanmar but also is giving China a stronger foothold you know and this is what this is the mistake that they keep making over and over again you know that sanctions are going to solve something you know u.s has imposed sanctions on myanmar's uh, defense ministry you know and uh, the two of the banks that are used by the military regime to buy arms and ammunition you know Uh, so if they put sanctions where's myanmar going to get their arms and ammunition from you know they'll get it from china you know, there's never, uh, you know, there, aren't, uh, there are enough people, you know, to support, uh, you know, against um, uh, U.S. interference, you know. And China has a lot of assets in Myanmar, you know. Uh, Myanmar is rich in oil, natural gas, you know. Uh, and we know about Myanmar's debt trap policy. Um, China has, uh, uh, sorry, China's debt trap policy. China has constructed a natural gas and oil pipeline which uh, starts from Shapshu city in Myanmar, Jaghan Strait, traverses through Qin State right to China's Yunnan region. You know, now China's Yunnan region is the springboard for the ASEAN, just the way India, uh, Northeast is the springboard for India, you know, to the ASEAN. You know, so uh, China is not going to uh, let go. On the contrary, the debt trap is going to become pose a problem for us because already in you know they they've been given loaned Cocoa Islands you know which is very very close to the Andamans Cocoa Islands from what we know today has <clears throat> made a landing strip you know a landing strip is a uh, you know would be considered a very large development I'm not saying that India is not keeping an eye on all these developments and India is not prepared, India is very well prepared but India can't do anything India's active policy is, is at risk India being, you know, the balancing power between the West and the East is at the risk India's access to Southeast Asia is at risk India's uh, investments in Myanmar is at risk Adani uh, had to pull out of Myanmar at a loss which actually impacted his uh, third quarter uh, his uh, results you know so you know it's going to affect us in multiple ways and we just don't seem to look closely or focus on this the way that we should be focusing
0: so last question before we wrap up what can india do what are there any tangible steps india can do to deal with this problem
1: See, India has its eye on the problem. I think India has made fairly good moves, you know, in terms of um, keeping channels of communication open, whether it's with the democratic forces or whether it's with um, uh, the junta. You know, they've kept their channels uh, open. I remember, you know, Mr. Shindra had gone and met uh, the leadership, uh, you know, after the uh, coup as well. You know, so we've kept our channels open. One of the results of the channels were that, uh, for whatever it was, was that when the Manipur conflict broke out, you know, Myanmar, you know, clearly gave out a notification warning its citizens uh, who are placed in, uh, uh, who have come to India, or, you know, who have done trade here, or who are living here or who have taken refuge here you know, to not indulge in any illegal activity, uh, to not cause any inter-ethnic uh, sort of problems, you know, then um, that happened because we'll get these channels of communication open. I think that's one of the things that we must continue to do is we must continue to keep the channels of communication open, number one. Number two, uh, our um, Northeastern border, as unpluggable as it is, it is extremely, extremely important to have um, populations on the border that understand the implications of. This. you know and I think you know a radical idea could also be that a lot of this important transit trade routes on these borders be converted into SEDs. The reason they be converted into SECs is because SECs will give uh, rise to a multicultural society. You know, it will uh, dissipate any sort of uh, demographic change. And that also I'm not talking about a natural demographic change. I'm talking about, uh, you know, a demographic change that's constructed, which we've seen happen, you know, uh, that would, uh, you know, counter any demographic change. It would also increase the ability for people to do business in these areas to be able to have the environment conducive uh, because there are these economic zones that have been demarcated. I think that would uh, also, and of course, none of these results would be immediate, but we have to think long term. These borders aren't going anywhere. So, you know, that is something that we should be aiming at. You know, number three, what we have noticed. In this uh, recent, uh, uh, what we have noticed in this recent, uh, 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 you know, insurgency in uh, Myanmar, is that a lot of towns that are being taken up uh, across the border, you know, by the CNA, the Chin National Army, are towns that are important trade routes for India are towns that are across Manipur and Mizoram are uh, towns that, um, you know, are transit routes. Now, this could also be a step towards this idea of, you know, this greater, you know, land, Zaligam, which is the land of freedom, which actually is, uh, you know uh, you know, if you were to really go into what the original idea of it was, you know, is not really, you know, a threatening idea. But, you know, the shape that it has taken in the uh, in the ethnic uh, uh, problems that we have seen of late um, begs us to look at it a little more seriously. You know, so, you know, if these are the towns that are taken by CNA, which is the insurgent Chin, insurgent group in Myanmar, you know, we have to question, why is it so close? Why is it across Myanmar? Uh, you know, uh, why is it across India? And why is it happening at this time? Are they, are they taking, um, are they making the most of this instability that's happening and creating their own designs? Or is it, you know, something innocent? You know, obviously, when you're looking at situations like this, you wouldn't go to the fact that it's innocent. You know, you would like to be more cautious than not. You know, so therefore, I think um, we have to be aware of this idea, and forget we. You know, it is uh, the transnational, uh, the transnational ethnic uh, groups that are Indian citizens that have to be more against this sort of. Uh, you know, this sort of maybe proposed design than anybody else. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of them and I believe that largely they are, you know, the average citizen, the average civilian is very much aware of the dangers of what is coming from across the border. It is the vested interest on our side of the border. It is people who are benefiting from these conflicts, people who are benefiting from the drug trade, people who are benefiting from insurgency that are really giving foundations to, you know, these kind of of grander designs to, you know, take shape. Now, we also must realize that this has happened before. This is not a new thing. It's happened before with uh, the demand for Greater Nagaland, which uh, wanted... uh, Parts of Myanmar, parts of you know states of the Northeast, to create uh, you know a greater independent, sovereign Nagaland, you know for Naga's, you know. And uh, I'm not going to get into this today, uh, but just to touch upon it, as you know very well, all these identities, whether it's the Naga identity, whether it's the you know uh, Chin identity. These are identities that were created uh, much later. You know, these were not, you know, these, these were not single tribes. Yes, they had loose connections with each other. But let's say the Nagas, you know, uh, you know it was only post the British and, you know, the kind of uh, uh, interference that they had that they created the Naga identity. They were known by their separate tribal names. They had separate languages. You know, they had separate dress codes, you know, so on and so forth. You know, it's the same with the chin cookies as well. You know, these are loosely connected uh, 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 tribes that have, yes, you know, some loose linguistic connections, uh, have, uh, you know, have uh, some ethnic uh, connectivity. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't think uh, any citizen of India would compromise uh, their status, their uh, safety and security cases, you know, any grander design like this, especially when people of that region know what grander designs like that did in the past, kept this region backward, uh, riddled it with insurgency, and eventually what is the outcome of it today? That there is a Naga peace accord that's been signed, you know. Yet it was the longest-running insurgency that impacted, you know, the entire region for so many years. So I don't think, you know, honestly, Kosha. I think you know uh, people in India, whether or you know whether they have transnational ethnic identities or not. I think they should be smarter. They should know what is in their benefit. They should keep their eyes and ears open because we as Indians depend on them being on the borders, you know, to keep our borders safe. We depend on them to ensure that this sort of, uh, you know, grander design doesn't ever come to fruition, and that any sort of. Uh, Illegal activity doesn't happen through these lands, you know. And uh, I think those are the things that we have to be careful about. And the Indian government, like I said, can do these one or two things like I have mentioned. But I would always, I would say that it is really important for us to make our populations in these regions very, very aware of the dangers that may happen. That would keep us safer than anything else
0: fair enough i think that that would be the perfect way to wrap up our discussion today i think this was a very exhaustive coverage of the history and on just to bolster your point on why sanctions don't work i actually it's been a while ago but i did a very detailed podcast on uh, why sanctions don't work uh, with uh, diva jain i would recommend everyone to go and uh, go and check that podcast out and it's called Why Sanctions Don't Work. And she had written an article, uh, I forgot the portal where she had written it. And then I requested her to come on the podcast where you know, she explained why sanctions at a conceptual level are very problematic as they never literally work. Most of the times they fall off. And I don't think the American or the European or the Western world, Anglo-American enterprise, as they say, they're trying to, to you know, attempt these stunts is going to work out or it's actually, you're right, it's going to push them in China's hand. And I hope India, you know, does what it can do in its capacity and uh, try to push them at. But uh, Rami, as always, pleasure talking to you. We'll 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 make sure we talk about some uh, some other subject uh, once in a while so that uh, we keep uh, giving Northeast its due due. Which which uh, at least I think uh, this podcast tries to do. So once again, thank you very much for coming.
1: Vishal, thank you so much for having me on as ever. Thank you for concentrating on the Northeast. You know. Uh, and that also, you know, people, you know, try to do it for 15, 20 minutes. You know, you can never explain these situations in that short time. So thank you for giving the time to it. You know, I, of course, have always said I've never considered myself an expert on, you know, the Northeast or Myanmar. You know, this is a lifelong passion. I'll continue studying it. So I may not know everything about it. I may not know it to the exact way, but, uh, you know, this is, what i'm going to be doing for the rest of my life so, <laughs> so that may go to my credit but if there have been some mistakes my apologies but uh yeah thank you very much for having me
0: it, it was my pleasure uh, thanks for coming uh so guys we'll wrap it up so just putting up the link to i'll also recommend all of you go to openmagazine.com and just google open magazine manipur needs to worry or manipur needs to worry rami desai and the article will pop up go and read it uh, it's, it's a great read. Uh, you, you'll understand uh, where and why this podcast was done. Uh, as you guys know, this podcast is a member-driven podcast. So if you can, please become a member of the Charvak podcast. You can do it through YouTube, through Patreon, through Fanmo. You can also buy the Charvak podcast merchandise. Go to kushalmehra.com slash shop. You can buy the merchandise over there. You can also send your donations through UPI on kushalmehra at ICICI. If you can't do anything just like subscribe leave your comments if you're an audio listener uh just leave a rating on spotify itunes whatever platforms you listen to the audio also go and follow rami i've left her twitter uh handle or x handle uh in the description of the podcast on the audio and the video version so go follow her on social media i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye